Hi, I'm Tracy Metz, and this is Episode 2 of Water Talks. And it starts in downtown Manhattan on Wall Street, where I'm meeting the American writer and historian Russell Shorto. Hello, Russell. Great to see you again in New York. We are sitting on Wall Street, across from the Wall Street Stock Exchange. And with an eye to Dutch-American relations, this is historic ground. It is. We are in the middle of New Amsterdam. Actually, we're at the northern edge of New Amsterdam. The street right behind us, which is called Wall Street, the wall that was built there was the northern perimeter of New Amsterdam. And it's actually marked. There's little wooden posts right down the middle of the street. Welcome to Water Talks, a podcast about the 2023 United Nations Conference on Water and the New York Water Week, made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. This series of five programs is about the weather, and to be more specific, about water. Too much of it, too little, too dirty, and too unequal. This is the second episode. We're calling this one Too Much. Russell Shorto is the founder of the New Amsterdam Project and former director of the John Adams Institute, where I am his successor. Russell is the author of the book The Island at the Center of the World, in which he states that New York became the cosmopolitan city it is now thanks to the Dutch tradition of tolerance when it was founded as New Amsterdam in the 17th century. He also says that New York had Dutch water management to thank for making it an economic powerhouse. The East River is just a subsidiary of the Hudson that wraps around that side of Manhattan. But the Hudson goes all the way north to Albany, to Beverwijk, as the Dutch called it, and further north. But around Albany, it connects to the Mohawk River, which goes all the way west to the Great Lakes. The Dutch settlers knew, ultimately, what you wanted was access to the interior, and there were no highways. Water was the highway. So in that sense, you can look from what the Dutch did in the 1600s to the whole development of the middle of America. What a fantastic story, Russell. Why didn't I learn anything about this at school? I guess my book wasn't written then. Oh, that must be it. (laughs) (laughs) So the Dutch were interested in New York because of its maritime trade possibilities. Now, of course, we look at water in a very different way. Since Hurricane Sandy, 2012, we can also see it as an enemy and something that we need to defend ourselves against rather than moving towards it. How do you see New York changing under the pressures of climate change and a different attitude to water? New York, from the Dutch period onward, for a long time, was very focused on the water. People who lived here and worked here knew that was their bread and butter. You know those pictures of the late 19th century and early 20th century of Manhattan Island with all the piers sticking out of it like spikes. The city was oriented toward the water and toward the world. All the world's goods could come to New York, into the harbor, up the Hudson, into the Great Lakes, and so on. And then in the 20th century, something strange happened. It started to turn its back on the water. For one thing, you can point to Robert Moses, who re-engineered the city so drastically and built highways running right through the middle. And basically, the city started to turn its back on the water, to wall it off, to wall off views of it. It's hard to see the water in a lot of places. and uh, To even physically access it. Exactly. Places to swim, for example, or even just walk along the shore. So that became the norm. It was, but, Russell, the, that 
difficulty of access to the water, that was not a question of fear, but because the water was really used for trade and shipping. I think it had to do with the transfer from trade and shipping to rail and trucks and the automobile. When they were building highways, that became the focus, and the water was almost a nuisance then. And then, of course, starting really with Hurricane Sandy, that's a very clear delineation in New York's awareness. Compared to other tragedies, there weren't a massive number of deaths. I think it was 43 people were killed. But major thoroughfares were turned into rivers, and so much damage was done, so many houses destroyed, and it really made people realize, oh, these warnings we'd been getting for years, we now have to do something. We can't live the way we used to. And since then, you see the city beginning to turn around again and face the water and realize we have to live with it, which, of course, the Dutch realized a long time ago. It's getting a little chilly, so Russell and I get moving again. My butt got cold. Mine too. (laughs) (laughs) For cities all over the world, facing the water, as Russell calls it, living with water, now means finding new ways to protect ourselves from extreme weather, be it storms and hurricanes or drought. After Hurricane Sandy, the Rebuild by Design competition created the Big U, a series of four major infrastructure projects designed to protect the lower half of Manhattan. More about that in a few minutes, when I talk to the Dutch architect and urban designer Matthijs Bau, who's been working on the Big U for eight years. But first, Russell and I finish our history lesson on a somewhat warmer bench in the sun at the southern tip of Battery Park. The view is magnificent. The Statue of Liberty, Brooklyn, New Jersey, and that expansive harbor that was so attractive to the Dutch and the British. The ferry to Staten Island is just leaving. There's a ship heading our way. It says Statue City Cruises. A tourist boat to the Statue of Liberty? And the Staten Island Ferry, of course, is just here on our left. And that's a nice thing to do, too, to get a sense of the water. You just take the ferry to Staten Island. You cross the harbor. If you stretched all of that coastline out, it would be longer than the state of California. I mean, it's an enormously vast and intricate network of waterways and coves and runnels and rivulets. I got an impression of that looking at the book Too Big that Hank Oving did after Sandy about the competition Rebuild by Design, which he initiated. And there's a map in the front of the book, in the flap, that you can fold out. And all the red areas were the areas that were impacted by Hurricane Sandy. And then I really, I think for the first time, realized what an enormous coastline this is. And it also makes you aware of the hugeness of the responses to make the city safe. And the other component to that is it's a regional solution. It has to be. And what struck me after... What struck me after Hurricane Sandy was that the Bloomberg administration put a lot of effort into this big 250-page report of what we have to do. I think... New Jersey was mentioned one time and Connecticut was mentioned one time. It was like only New York City mattered. And of course, as the Dutch know better than anyone, these things are regional. You have to take all of this into consideration. The water knows no borders. Exactly. Certainly not political borders. (laughs) That was the writer and historian Russell Shorto. We spoke at Battery Park at the bottom tip of Manhattan. 
Back in 2012, when Sandy tore over the East Coast and New York, the tip of Manhattan was not a safe place to be, as the ABC News reported at the time. Good morning, George. And let me show you first the satellite picture, which will show you this storm is basically one of the largest we've ever seen. Wind field from this storm is incredibly impressive. We've got tropical storm force winds a thousand miles across in this storm and hurricane force winds about 200 miles across. It basically means it doesn't matter where this storm comes on shore for anything other than the storm surge, which is expected to be about four to 10 feet high. After that, wind and rain in a very large area. How can we make sure that Manhattan, in its most vulnerable places, is protected when a surge, a storm, and sea level rise hits New York? This is Mr. Water, Henk Ovink, Special Envoy from the Netherlands for International Water Affairs. Before that, he was a member of President Obama's Hurricane Sandy Rebuilding Task Force. We had $60 billion to spend in the recovery So there was quite a bit of money to make sure that went out of the door in a very transparent, accountable, but most importantly, also impactful way. In that context, I said, we have to think about the future. The money that goes into repair is fine. But wherever we can put a dollar in that really is about preparedness and about looking at that future. Because I remember you were saying, Henk, at some previous gathering which I attended, that every dollar that you put into prevention is worth $4 at the end of the road. More even. More to seven. Depending on how you spend it, even more. Hank set up a collaborative competition called Rebuild by Design. This was a new and innovative way of working in the U.S. The teams were to work closely with each other and with the communities rather than top-down. Designers get the same say as engineers. In Hank's book about Rebuild by Design, Too Big... He calls it a conscious detour around the sometimes rigid and ineffective ways that government works. 148 teams from all over the world sent in their ideas. Ten of them were selected, each for a different location. One of them is the Big U, which our next guest, Matthijs Bau, will tell you more about. But first I ask Hank how New York's preparation for the next superstorm is progressing. Now we're 10 years after. We have already concluded projects, larger infrastructure, nature-based solutions, community-led projects, changing rules, communication projects, and large-scale infrastructure in the making right now. So you can tour Hoboken, Staten Island, Manhattan, Long Island, and Brooklyn, and you will find Rebuild by Design solutions everywhere. In that sense, you can actually say New York's going really fast compared to other places around the world. Is critical infrastructure better prepared? Yes. Is the whole city of New York protected? No, that's impossible. It's a larger economy than the Netherlands. eh? It took us 35 years. This takes time. Remember in the last show that New York City's chief climate officer, Rit Agarwala, said that New York was building macho stuff to keep the water out, but with a Dutch approach to integrating it into the location and the community. That is to say, water defenses that are not just walls, but amenities like parks and promenades and sports fields. Well, one of the people actually designing these things is a Dutchman, Matthijs Bau of One Architecture. He's a professor of climate resilience at the University of Pennsylvania and the first urban resilience fellow at the Rockefeller Foundation. He's working on the Big U. The Big U is a coastal protection system for Manhattan, basically about 10 miles from, let's say, the UN on the east side down to the Battery 
and then up on the west side till 57th Street that is thought of as not only a resilience infrastructure, but also a social infrastructure. The idea was that we would like to make this an infrastructure that improves the communities that it was going through and that improves the relationship with the waterfront so that it's useful for the city on all those days that there's no storm threatening. It was revolutionary in the U.S. that designers could take on a role in creating this infrastructure. That was not something that they were used to do here. In America, more even than in many other countries, this is the work of engineers, and they build up straight flood walls. And this competition said, we need to bring designers in, or actually multidisciplinary teams, but led by designers. And in the Netherlands, this is just the norm, right? Yes, we have been much better there. We have a culture where designers are really thought of as, let's say, stewards of the public spaces that new infrastructure is built in, and they're fantastic examples of multi-benefit solutions. We won this competition, and winning the competition basically meant that the federal government gave, in our case, $335 million to the city of New York, and we were told thank you, or maybe not even told thank you. But in, at the end, there was no, was, no immediate follow-up. It was thank you and goodbye. <laughs> and thank you and goodbye. How do you work your way in when nobody's waiting for your input? Something in between bagging and being very modest. We proved our worth. We showed that designers have a role there. People started to see the value we bring in creating solutions that work better in the city, that are, by extension, community-supported. They also saw that we had the tools to engage the community, and so slowly our role became bigger and bigger. And in many of the follow-up contracts, we have been able to stay on board and to be part of the winning team. My impression is that the U.S. is much better at bringing people in to consult and be involved in the design process rather than just parachuting a design down from the top. Was that the case here? That was really one of the great lessons to learn. I mean, there's a necessity for that, right? America is a very cruel country in a way that they have much less regulation. They have much less buffering and protection by governments. And so communities know how to organize. And that meant that when we entered this space, there were fantastic community organizations and fantastic individuals who we could connect with and who could help us find our way in the community and make sure that the right people were at the table when we developed our designs. So Matthijs Bouw managed to sell the Americans on the Dutch way. We are now 10 years into building this series of flood protection measures called the Big U. What is it actually? One of the big ideas about the Big U is to say we need about 10 miles of coastal infrastructure here to protect against big storms. But we should not think of this as a 10-mile-long project. That's too big for the city to do. But we also shouldn't think of it as protective infrastructure only. We should think of it as community infrastructure, as social infrastructure. So we designed the Big U as a necklace of compartments that each have their own what is called independent utility because they each connect to higher ground. So the big U is actually about 12 small U's. 
The Eastside Coastal Resiliency, which was the project that was funded out of the River by Design competition, was then the first compartment. After the Eastside Coastal Resiliency, we designed another project called the Brooklyn Bridge Montgomery Coastal Resiliency project that is now also under construction. And then we are currently working on the master plan for the financial district and the seaport coastal resiliency project. I think there's something really interesting about that design for the financial district. That was the only place where the buildings were up so close to the water, you had to go into the water with your designs. We didn't have enough space. And so we decided to explore how to build in water. And now the design that we are developing is partially in water to give us more space. Because of the complications there, there's a lot of subway tunnels. You need to reorganize the entire ferry system. It's also built at a higher elevation than these other projects in order to accommodate sea level rise far beyond 2100. The area around the financial district is being designed to withstand sea level rise for a much longer period, all the way to 2100. Why isn't the whole big U being designed for what we know is coming? If we know what is coming, we should be building 50 meter high flood walls. (laughs) But that's maybe 10, 20 centuries out, right? We know that sea levels are rising. We don't know exactly at what rate they are rising. And so one of the challenges you have when designing these type of projects is what is an optimum elevation to design for now, given the additional cost of extra elevation. In the financial district, we said by the end of the century, we are going to have to contend with a significant sea level rise. So we need to make sure that the entire surface is elevated in order to manage tidal flooding so that whenever there's a king tide the downtown doesn't flood the structure that protects against storm surge flooding is then based on a worst case scenario that goes into the 22nd century in matthijs studio my eye is drawn to the designs of how the one and a half billion dollar east side coastal resiliency project will look they're so hopeful so different from the mile-high concrete walls surrounding a future Manhattan in the science fiction TV series The Expanse. The FDR Drive along the east side of the island is kind of a wall. Ever since it was built in 1955, this big, busy, noisy highway has physically cut off Manhattanites from the water. Now, (laughs) thanks to Hurricane Sandy, ironically, The city is working to incorporate this huge swath of concrete into an elevated green space with parks and sports fields that doubles as resilient storm protection. Hmm. Turns out disaster can create new opportunities. In the future, the use of highways and the need for highways might change. We've seen a lot of places all over the world reimagining their coastal highways. So we are exploring together with the city, what futures without a highway or with a covered highway might look like. So projects like the Big U generate their own new visions. It's never about the next thing, but also about the thing after that. I think that's a really good point, right? One of the things that we learn about how to work in the climate space is that we're dealing with unpredictability and uncertainty. 
we know that change is always there. So we need to design whatever we design in a dynamic and adaptive way because we know that what we design now will have to be redesigned or adjusted at a later stage. We've talked about how the Americans have learned from the Dutch approach to integrating design into the whole execution process. What have you learned from the Americans? Oh, a lot. We already talked about the community engagement. Like, how do you make sure that you design in a very inclusive way that you celebrate the diversity of a city in your design processes? That is something that is just fantastic to be part of. These projects, even though 10 years might seem like a very long time from the initial vision to now, actually are going really fast. Once they make a decision to do something, to really move things forward, despite all the struggles that we've had. So that energy is something that I really appreciate as well. This climate infrastructure is new. Making a new generation of infrastructure in cities is new. To build the coalitions and to bring the people together to figure out how the hell to do this is super exciting. And I find that the curiosity of Americans combined with their ability to get things done is just super inspiring. That was Matthijs Bouw, a Dutch architect and urban designer who has been working for eight years now to make New York climate-proof. And that ends this edition of Water Talks, a program by me, Tracy Metz, written and produced together with Jonathan Gruber. Our theme song is called Into the Unknown by Poddington Bear. We've linked to a lot of the work you heard about in the show notes. Make sure you check it out. Water Talks was made possible by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water Management. Next time on the show, Too Little. I'll be talking with, among others, performance artist Sarah Cameron Sunde and the Native American Austin Nunez from the desert state of Arizona. So far in this podcast, we've talked about what to do about storms and floods. But in our next episode, we'll consider a future in which the water runs out. And that moment may come sooner than we thought. That's next time on Water Talks. I'm Tracy Metz. Thanks for listening.